The Social Security Administration struck a recent deal, more or less, with its unions to return most employees to their offices by the end of March. Both parties are in talks to negotiate the finer points of the plan. Union officials say SSA leadership isn't giving much ground on certain elements of the reentry plan, such as telework or having people come into field offices only by appointment. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with AFGE Council 220 Vice President Angela DiGeronimo. From our perspective, to be honest with you, we're feeling very betrayed because in good faith, and I know because it's my signature on that agreement, we said, okay, we can't do this all together because every component has its own particular needs and has its own particular challenges. So let's split it up into component discussions and try to come to agreement. And if those discussions were not fruitful, we would have the opportunity to put in a demand to bargain for our specific issues. And the agency ran with, we have an agreement, we're coming back on March 30th, regardless, even though the agreement does say that they would keep an eye on developments from the pandemic, which could go south at any moment, you know, hopefully it'll go totally well and we will be putting the pandemic behind us. Nobody wants that more than the employees at Social Security, trust me. Still, we're optimistic. We want to reach a good agreement with the specifics and be able to keep everyone safe, but we're not there. That is definitely a wrinkle in plans here, especially since, as you said, that agreement says that you know it is a re-entry contingent on everything going well and that making sure that these agreements are being made. And from what you're saying, SSA management is saying that March 30th is going to be the re-entry date, regardless of how those conversations go. What other kinds of concerns from your understanding of things are managers raising about this office re-entry? They want to know how they're going to control the incoming traffic if we don't have appointment only, which is what the union right now is advocating for. Keep it at appointment only. And we do recognize that, of course, there's going to be that dire need situation where someone comes walking through the door and didn't have access to us by phone or, you know, through the Internet, and they're going to need something from us immediately. That is not going to be the overwhelming amount of people that we serve. That's going to be the outlier. And, of course, we would handle those situations as they came up. But management is worried about how are we going to control the crowds. If we don't control it in the sense that we continue to have appointments, it's going to be problematic. People are going to get angry. They're going to come to the office thinking that they're going to be able to come in and just sit down as usual. And that's not going to be the case. How are we going to control those crowds? So it would make more sense to have a plan. The the most frustrating thing for the union right now is that the agency from the top does not have a plan. Their plan is a non-plan. Their plan is to go back to pre-pandemic business as usual. The union, on the other hand, yes, we recognize the doors need to be open. But we are putting forward some progressive ideas to leverage technology so that we give the public a multitude of ways to contact us and to conduct business with us. But the agency is not willing to listen. They are antiquated in their thinking, and it is just easier for them to just go back to business as usual, which in our mind 
is not safe. This is an evaluation period. We could try different things. We could find a sweet spot where not only safety will be the ultimate goal, but also quality public service by offering a variety of ways to conduct business with us. Change policies to make our programs more accessible. Yeah. And it sounds to me that not just from a health and safety perspective on this, it seems like the union is looking at this from a service perspective as well and making sure that they're able to best serve people who need to get through to SSA. Absolutely. We have been advocating this throughout the time of the pandemic. We need to change. We need to change how we do things. We're losing employees. I've been working for the agency for 25 years, and I have never experienced employees resigning. I've experienced many a retirement. It's very happy. It's usually after 30, 35, 40 years of service to the agency. For the first time, I am experiencing employees resigning. They're resigning to go to other agencies, some of them that offer telework, that give those flexibilities. I'm experiencing them leaving federal service altogether and going to private industry where they're able to get higher wages and also the flexibility of being able to have better hours so that it's not your typical nine to five and also the flexibility of working from home. On top of an already stressed workforce because we are critically understaffed, now we're adding to it that people are resigning, which is making us even more understaffed. Come March 30th, we're also expecting a very high volume of people who will retire, people who have held on during this time because they were given the opportunity to telework and so they wanted to continue to serve the American public and they have concerns about coming back into the office and not being safe. It seems like that has not yet been fully ironed out, the telework side of things. Tell me, how are those conversations going in regards to telework? What is the position that you guys are fighting for in terms of telework post reopening here? The component that is meeting the most resistance from the Agency for Telework is our component. So the employees that we represent in field offices and teleservice centers, the agency is not even engaging in conversation regarding telework. What we would propose is being that we're going to be in an evaluation period is to maximize telework for the time being and seeing where that sweet spot is by tweaking here or tweaking there. But this is our vision, right? If we maximize telework, then we potentially could quadruple our workforce without having to increase the footprint of the agency and putting on an added expense of brick and mortar buildings because we can rotate people in have the maximum amount in the office while we also have people uh, teleworking and doing teleclaims and doing video claims because we've put that on the table as well, adjudicating internet claims because we do handle those as well. There is a plethora of things that we are doing while we're teleworking. We, we basically could do 95% of the job from home remotely. So that is our vision. We want to leverage telework in order to expand our workforce 
so that we can become an agency that truly can serve the public efficiently. And that's Angela DiGeronimo, the AFGE Council 220 Vice President, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Jory joins me now with a few more details on this bellwether return to the office plan. And Jory, what's your sense of how these meetings are actually going between SSA and the union staff? Based on what we've been hearing so far, they've been off to a rocky start. We just heard from Angela DiGeronimo. What she told me that we didn't yet get to in the tape is that the union has not yet engaged in meat and potato issues, is what she said, with the SSA leadership. And what that really means for her is that the union has not yet gotten a chance to address its health and safety concerns. Things like once SSA field offices reopen, how are they going to deal with the employees who pick up the phones and call people? You know, these are some big offices. Some of them have hundreds of employees all in one space. And so the idea is, are they all going to socially distance? If so, how? And if that's not possible, how are they going to operate? Are they going to be wearing masks the entire time during the day? And If so, are they going to be wearing masks in such a way that it's going to muffle and be hard for members of the public to understand them over the phone? Yeah, these are almost like Department of Motor Vehicle situations where you've got a giant room, hundreds of people waiting and all these people behind booths and so on. So with respect to telework, then, that's the related issue. How are those negotiations going? At this point, DiGeronimo says that the Council 220 has not yet really engaged in these conversations with SSA leadership, uh, although it's a huge piece of how the agency is going to operate post-reopening, post-office reentry. The union's position here is that they would like to maximize telework. This is really an interesting period where they're going through an evaluation of sorts, where they are looking at what a post-reopening future workforce could look like here. And what the union maintains is that SSA has been much more productive uh, being able to maximize telework, being able to you know, flex its workforce and deal with a backlog of cases, uh, regardless of where they're situated in the country. That being said, DiGeronimo said that there are, of course, some employees who don't feel that way. There's no uniform opinion on telework and that there are certainly SSA employees who would like to go into the office uh, and that In some cases, those are the employees who have volunteered first to come into the office uh, as soon as it's safe to do so. That's the same refrain I got from Ralph DeJulius, who's the president of another one of their councils, that he feels they're more productive seeing people by video or by telephone than by coming into the office. Although it's hard to picture just given it takes as long as it takes to look up information and impart it to a person. But it certainly saves the Social Security recipient time because you don't have to travel somewhere. You can just sit down and pick up the phone or log on. All right, so what's ahead? When do AFGE and Social Security meet next, and what will they be talking about when they do get together? Their next meeting is going to be on February the 10th, and when I asked DiGeronimo what's on the agenda for this conversation, she said it's going to be, again, health and safety concerns, which is the union's top priority here in terms of office reopening. And that can encompass a lot of things. It could encompass telework. It can encompass basic things like crowd control, which is an open question on how things are going to potentially look on March 30th. From going to all of one thing of mandatory telework to all of another thing, fully reopening to walk-ins, to appointments, to everybody, that seems to be a big concern for the union, making sure that they just have the bandwidth to deal with all these people coming through the door. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. 
I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.